Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Uh, I want to talk today uh, about, and I'm, my slides haven't come up there, so I'll look at them here. Um, uh, I, I want to talk today about escaping the iron law of business as usual. And um, I was introduced as someone who has something to do with innovation. I don't much like the term innovation. Uh, it sort of means so many different things to so many different people. But I want to use a fairly simple idea which people who um, are involved with innovation um, are familiar with often, uh, and that is the valley of death. Uh, the valley of death exists in various different forms, in, in, and now we're talking about private sector innovation, but the valley of death, the worst valley of death in innovation in private sector innovation in Australia uh, is the uh, valley of death between some technology that is developed in a university and commercial and proper commercial um, uh, exploitation and growth. We do it terribly. Uh, in fact, most countries do it very badly, even in the United States. Um, most universities fail at getting across the valley of death. But that's relevant to our community because I think there's an even worse valley of death in social policy. Um, and the way it works is fairly simple. Uh, policy discussion uh, is had as if there is a market. We all know it's not a perfect market, but there is a, uh, there is a process going on in which uh, a market is imagined, and this market is a market in which the government provides money for social programs, there are lots of providers of social programs, and good social programs will be purchased more than bad social programs. That's pretty, the, the pretty simple logic of it. And because those social pro there can also be pilots which are piloting new approaches to things and lots of NGOs will be doing um, exciting new innovations in social policy and we all need we all know that we need that it's pretty obvious that we're not doing a very good job of social policy uh, and I distinguish between thin and thick areas of policy Australia's been typically very good at thin policy, and what I mean by thin policy is uh, policy where you change a tax rate, you change a welfare payment rate, and the whole system, and, and it immediately scales because we we already have a system that uh, that, that organises that in a around the country. And thick policy problems are problems like looking after or trying to protect neglected and abused or suspected neglected and abused children, uh, Aboriginal welfare, mental health, just teaching kids well at school, uh, keeping them healthy. Uh, those are thick policy problems. And we fancy we're good at that, 
uh, and I think we're, uh, we're not, I guess, amongst our peers in the world, terrible at it, but we could be so much better at that. And what it always gets down to is a, a mistake, a category mistake. I'm now going to explain to you how to play chess better than Magnus Carlsen. You learn the rules, uh, and then you make sure that you make moves that are better than Magnus Carlsen makes. Um, you might not think that's a very funny joke, um, but that's the sort of thing that we do all the time. And what we do is, because we're dealing with a difficult area of know-how, how do you do those things, we default backward, back all the time because it's more familiar territory, because it makes us feel more competent. Uh, we default to talking about knowledge, not know-how. We, we don't face up to the fact that we don't know how. And so we're back at a rather cruel joke that people tell about economists, uh, which is, you know the economist on the desert island and there's a, a bunch of cans of food and everyone's starving and there's an engineer and a mathematician and an economist. I don't know the joke that well. I don't know what the engineer or the mathematician says, <laughs> but I can tell you what the uh, economist says. He says, assume a can opener. And that's kind of more or less what we do. Here is the Productivity Commission's, uh, this comes out of their most recent report on uh, indigenous evaluation strategy. And they think it's an important contribution. They think it's a central contribution, not really to look at how to do this well, not really to look at who has done it well and how they've managed to do it well and who's been not doing it well but continuing to get paid to do it. They, don't, they didn't look at any of those things with any, um, with any great focus. In fact, they don't know very much about evaluation. But what they did, so what they did was they presented us with a chart with some very pleasing words on it. They told us that the principles of um, evaluation, this national strategy that they were releasing was a strategy for evaluation to be credible, useful, transparent and ethical. And the question of how to do each of those things was somehow, oh, but there's obviously there's 500 page backup report, but somehow that fell into the background, as if the task was to say these words. I think it would be pretty easy to come up with four other pleasing words. Uh, and I'm hoping that people in, in the audience will have had that experience, will have had the experience of, uh, just, just let me put a question in your mind that next time at the next uh, corporate away day when you see a chart like that, just ask yourself, if something similar is happening. So what matters, what's hard, what's fundamental about 
getting a system with know-how, a system that knows how to deal with difficult problems, that has skill that works in it, is we need some healthy relationship between the arteries and the capillaries of a large system. Um, and there, we need to know about Lord Acton's fault line. Now, I've told this joke for 20 years, I suppose, as a bit of a throwaway line, but in a recent uh, essay on the Productivity Commission's inquiry, uh, on the Productivity Commission's report into uh, Aboriginal evaluation, um, I, I, I made a deliberate decision early on in the essay. I said, I'm going to bring this into centre stage. This is something we need to think about because this is driving the system crazy. It's, dri it's driving the capacity to focus on what matters out of our deliberations. So the joke is this. This is a joke that Lord Acton made at the beginning of the 20th century or thereabouts. That, uh, it was quoted by Gough Whitlam, which is where I think I heard it first. That rowing is the perfect preparation for life, for public life, because it enables you to go in one direction while you face in the other. And, of course, we've all seen that uh, sent up on Yes Minister or Utopia, but, but the subtlety of it is what matters, the depth of this. We all know that if you, and, and this is, you know, a plot line of lots of episodes of Utopia, we all know that if you give a bureaucracy a task, it will pretend to do it. It doesn't matter if it makes no sense at all. A brave bureaucrat may say to their minister, minister, we're not sure what this means, minister, we don't advise this is a good idea, but once there is a policy there, the bureaucracy will not say, we don't know what we're doing. Um, so here's an illustration, a quick illustration of Lord Acton's, Lord Acton's fault line in action. It's from an area which has relevance for the social sector but isn't from the social sector. And it is our habit, which we now have had for 34 years since regulation impact statements were announced in 1986 by Bob Hawke's government. Um, we, every five or 10 years, we announce that there's too much red tape and we're really gonna get solved at this time. Um, so that's what is possible. That's what the system is constantly defaults to. And it's what drives us towards a s state in which we used to th which we used to think characterised the developing world. And this is the situation, the cult of announceables, and the, the, the problem that it's nice to announce new things and that's what the system likes to do, uh, but actually making the things that have been announced previously work, especially if they've been announced by a predecessor, well, that's not, uh, that, that doesn't go over so well on the telly. And here's Lord Acton's um, fault line. Uh, at work, the New South Wales government announced that it was, it was, it was going to uh, really have a big push for evidence-based policy. A few years later, the Auditor General did a report on this 
and said that it was, quote, largely ineffective. No information is provided on the performance of programs that have been evaluated. And on we go. Um, the uh, Institute for Government in um, uh, the United Kingdom produced a remarkable report um, which is called All Change, if you want to look it up, a couple of years ago, which simply documents the way in which new eight and ten-year plans have, were announced. If you look down the bottom there at industrial strategy, they began being announced every four years, then every three years, and then every year. Um, so it's good for the announcements, but uh, this is not a system that is functioning. And we do something pretty similar. Here's the former Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, talking about the degree of churn in Aboriginal affairs. So the challenge here is that we have policy up the top, we have delivery down the bottom, and that is and, and learning from the field nurturing know-how, protecting it, protecting what is known by the system and having it survive all the way up to the top. And who knows, speaking truth to power, that is very antithetical to a hierarchy where all the power is at the top. And a close personal friend of mine from the 18th century made this remarkable statement. Adam Smith, the founder of free market, or taken to be the founder of free market economics, made this statement that the disp disposition to admire and almost worship the rich and the powerful, though necessary to maintain the order of society, is at the same time the most universal cause of corruption of our moral sentiments. You can take a line directly from that to what Peter Shergold said in 2005, which is that everybody, everyone knows in the public service that the status goes to those who are in charge of policy, not those, uh, that, that's those people who do the nice charts, not those people who have learned how to do a difficult thing in the community and have built a system that might be able to do that. Um, I often use this example that I became familiar with when I was chairing the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, which is a program called Family by Family. We were asked to build an early intervention program to stop families falling into crisis. And it was a very radical program, but of course it was just motherhood and apple pie. It, was, it, it arose out of lengthy discussions with the families themselves. And it worked uh, by introducing, by, by uh, families self-identifying as at risk of being of falling into some kind of crisis, being matched with another local family, preferably who had been through tough times themselves. Um, a small fact to give you a bit of a sense of the texture of the program, it was the family, it was the family that was we were seeking to help, who chose their mentor family, a bit like a dating service, if you like. I think, I, I'm, I'm just going to guess now, but I suspect that there is no human services department in the country that actually actively matches caseworkers to families. A family will just get 
a caseworker. That's how bureaucracies work. And the program didn't, it wasn't just a mentoring program, it was highly articulated and there were trained family coaches who were taking the families through that program. Now, the, uh, the important thing to tell you about that is I think the first um, rollout of that uh, program would have been in, say, 2010, maybe 2011, at the latest 2012. It's still running. It ran in New South Wales. It ran in South Australia. But there's not much point in that. It should either have been expanded or it should have been closed down. Uh, neither. Uh, and again, to quote Peter Shergold, now eight years after saying that he would like this to change, uh, here he is saying that, of course, it hasn't changed uh, and that policy just cycles through these processes again and again. So let's get back to that social, that, that social policy valley of death. I want to try to... I, this came as a bit of a shock to me because I suddenly realised that it's not really even a valley, it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of chasm. It's, it's kind of impossible to get across that valley uh, in social policy. And that's because it's not really a valley, it's a catch-22. Um, so this is what we do. We imagine we're in a, we, we imagine we're in a, um, uh, uh, the, you know, the government imagines itself it's in a shop, it's got all this money, and then someone comes along, an NGO comes along and says, we've got this fantastic program, it will lower recidivism. It will, uh, it will uh, ensure that kids who have to be removed from their families are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they'll be 50% better off than they would be in the way we're treating them now. And then what happens is that well, often the Department of Human Services says this is a nice idea, thanks for, coming, thanks for telling us, we don't have any particular money for you at the moment, and if it gets to a Department of Finance or Treasury, then the Department of Finance and Treasury will say, yeah, well, everyone says that. You need an independent evaluation. So off you go and you get yourself an independent evaluation. That'll cost you a few hundred thousand dollars. You go to Deloitte or PwC or if you want a better report and a slightly lower price, you'll come to lateral economics. And um, then you go back and then they throw it in the bin. Because, of course, it's not an independent report. Everyone knows that Deloitte and, and PricewaterhouseCoopers make their money from uh, providing the best compromise between absolutely independent rigour and what the client wants. And there is, in this area, plenty of room to give the client what they want. And so the departments of finance are right to throw those things in the bin, but what they are not right to do is to look at themselves in the mirror. No one is paying attention to the fact that we are essentially building an imaginary vehicle. There is no, there, there is, this is not a market. It can't function as a market. Uh, and no one's really noticed and uh, I think the sector needs to 
try to identify that and try and work out some kind of strategic response to it. People say Einstein said that, I'm not too sure that's right, but it's not a bad thing to say anyway. So I want to talk about what we might do then to escape business as usual, and I'm going to do it in sort of two tranches. Um, this is a kind of minimum, I think of this as a minimum necessary, uh, a minimum viable product, if you'll pardon another bit of jargon from the, from the innovation world. Um, just a mi what, what's a minimum necessary to escape Catch-22? So the system, the, the sector needs to say to the system, we want much more clarity about what these evaluate, what, what is it you're looking for in evaluation and where is the colour of your money so that if that evaluation is a good evaluation, it will turn into something and that it will, uh, these programs will be compared on some kind of level playing field with what is being done now. There needs to be removal of conflicts of interest in commissioning those studies. That sounds like a scary thing for the sector, of course, because the sector will want to have an influence on those studies. But there, uh, you need to know about an economic principle called Gresham's Law, named after uh, an advisor to Elizabeth I. And that, that, law is the, that law is that bad money drives out good. And if you can't make that of those evaluations good money, you are wasting your money in doing them. It has simply become another regulation, another cost. It isn't achieving anything beyond that, but you're all, you're all on a level playing field with everybody else who's doing those independent evaluations. So the sort of thing that would need to do, the, the sort of minimal thing that would be necessary would be some uh, government funding of evaluation. Now, that, that's implicitly there anyway. If they fund people and then require an evaluation, that needs to be rearranged, unpacked, and then there needs to be a process of commissioning evaluations according to clear ideas about what you want out of those evaluations with NGOs and service providers having some uh, being consulted and having some role in how those evaluations, are, who they're allocated to and how they're done. And then the question is, is it possible to use the system we have at the moment to place some pressure on the system? Because this system will not reform itself um, without quite a lot of pressure. And I think that that is possible and, the, and, and I think we need to talk about it and strategize it and so on, but I'm simply putting up here a, uh, a sketch of the beginnings of the sort of thing that might be asked by the sector of the government. So I suggest a biennial Auditor-General stock-taking report and that report would report in a fairly standardised way on the state of pilots, other exploratory innovation at the edge of the system. 
um, how is the best innovation identified, what's being upscaled and downscaled and why. And here is a big one, I should have put it in flashing lights or in a different colour, that thing at the bottom, which is don't imagine that the people at the top can suck the knowledge out of the bottom of the system, out of the edge of the system and codify it and control it. If the system is to, is, is to acquire know-how, then we want to see the people who are doing it, the people who are showing how to get together all of those difficult things that are necessary to achieve something like this, we want to see them getting more agency in the system, not the people who are sitting there at the top. They can keep doing their jobs. Their job is to make sure this process happens. That's hard. That's uh, way beyond the idea of a nudge unit or what works centre, which is what the sort of thing I'm assuming you, you will know what those two things mean, and if you don't, I'm very happy to answer questions about them. So I now want to conclude, um, and I want to conclude by telling you about a meeting that took place in 1947. And it was a meeting of people who thought the world was going to hell in a handbasket, and... Um, they were, they fancied themselves as liberals. Some of you will know of a person called Friedrich Hayek who put the whole thing together. This was the beginning of neoliberalism. They actually called themselves neoliberals. Uh, and they understood that to get things done, you need to have a strategic idea of what you're doing, which is a bit ambitious, um, that can, that is not just uh, that, that you don't take out what won't be accepted, you just keep working. You, you, in other words, you keep working on all of the you keep working on all of the important agendas you have with power. They don't go away; they just continue. But you start to build an intellectual consensus around critical issues. And that is how change is always... And, and, and we have seen the extraordinary amount of impact that that group had, a little of it for the good, and most of it, it turns out, in the end, not for the good. Uh, deregulation in all directions. And in Australia, it's been exactly the same uh, formula for change, which is, if you take... So here's a quote... For, well. That's a quote from Professor Max Corden. The idea of lower tariffs in Australia is only of academic interest, 1968. But of course, by 1973, it had, become, it had started to become a consensus of informed opinion. And by 1988, it was all over. Uh, this is, uh, the preconditions are the identification of the problem, intellectual work proposing a response, a broad consensus behind that work. It has worked for tariffs, tax, the NDIS, land care, uh, lots of things. Those are the good things, um, not all good. I suppose there are bits and pieces there that people mightn't be happy with. And then it's worked for lots of bad things as well. 
So I want to invite the sector to, uh, it was also worked for Greenhouse until it got derailed, um, and I want to invite the sector to do the same thing for itself. Uh, so I want to invite anyone who would like to in the audience to join me and some others who um, I've nominated to uh, strategize our way out of business as usual. If you did want to do that, you certainly wouldn't represent your organization. Um, you'd just be a person trying to think through the issues. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.